Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 125, and this begins eight consecutive episodes of exclusive Nymph coverage. That's the New York Musical Theater Festival. For those of you not in the know, it's NYMF. You can find out more information about these shows by visiting our show notes at broadwaybullet.com, and you can get tickets and more information at nymf.org. Org. We're going to be talking in, to uh, the show's Beastly Bombing, Cutman, and The Kids Left, The Dog Died, Now What, on this episode, and you're going to hear songs from each of them. And we're also going to, right off the bat, talk with Executive Director Chris Stewart. Now, this is a good time to subscribe. If you're not, you don't want to miss all the great musical theater coverage we've got coming your way. Uh, you can go to broadwaybullet.com, and we got some buttons on the front page to add to iTunes. takes you right to our page in iTunes where you can subscribe, and you won't miss an episode. If you use another podcast aggregator, we have the MP3 version available, and you can get that by subscribing to the XML feed. Uh, the iTunes feed's a little special. We've got chapters that uh, let you move back and forth between the various segments on the show, so it's a great reason to use iTunes if you uh, got it. All right, well, let's not waste any more time. Uh, let's get moving with the program. Close. Well, I'm sitting here in the hallway outside of our studio because <laughs> we got a lot of interns talking with uh, Nymph on getting our massive coverage going for Nymph going. And I'm sitting here with the illustrious, omnipresent executive director, Chris Stewart. How you doing? I'm glad to be omnipresent. <laughs> That's a good thing to be. <laughs> One thing I want to let everybody know is there's also a great uh, interview about various things festival-related in our very first episode ever yeah. from last year, so people can still check that out. There's some great coverage last year. We had a lot of shows come through Broadway Bullet, so it was really good. So I thought what a lot of what we talk about this year is maybe some of your favorite highlight moments from festivals in your past and yeah, some things that come to your head. Um, it's kind of a funny, because we're heading to our fourth now, and the, thinking back to the first year of the festival, it was such a uh, fly-by-the-seat-of-our-pants kind of thing. Like, we really didn't know whether it was going to happen for a second time. And I think that summer was also the first summer of SPF, and there was a lot of festival activity in in Manhattan, and a lot of us were just sort of trying it for the first time. And I think, you know, I, I, I never would have expected that it would have grown as much as it has. It really was obviously filling a gap because it's been a real, you know, I really feel like it's a, a part of the community now, and a lot of people think that we've been around a lot longer than we have. Um, I remember that first year that the two of the things that sort of stick most in the memory was probably the first performance of Title of Show, because it was so much about the festival, but it was also 
just it sort of suited the spirit of what we were doing, which was kind of irreverent. You know, I was a bit of a, you know, a fuck you for one of a bit. We had to say that on Broadway, but like, <laughs> um, because it, a lot of what we were doing was sort of saying that you know, musical theatre isn't a club; it's something that we should all belong to, and it can be kind of youthful and vibrant and different. It doesn't need to be the way it's been for fifty years. We can do different things with this, and there was such a that so matched the spirit of what we wanted to do. The other thing I think was the first performance of um, the Great American Trailer Park musical. Because that was... Even though Alter Boys was amazing in the first year, um, and we sort of... You would have these crowds spilling out of the 47th Street Theatre onto the street because the whole show had sold out weeks in advance at the festival, but people weren't used to pre-booking for festivals. They weren't really used to this idea that they couldn't just turn up and get a ticket. So we would have you know, 100, 200 people, whatever the numbers were, arriving. But then another couple of hundred just thinking they could turn up and get a ticket. <laughs> 400 people out the streets with no lobby space at 47th Street, cars honking, trying to get past, and people getting annoyed when they were walking their dog. And it was like, God, look at this. Um, but I also remember the Great American Trailer Park. That was the first show of the festival that year, I think, where watching it, it seemed like you were watching a hit show. It seemed like... You know, you, I imagine it was like what seeing a, a film at Sundance was, that no one really knew was out there, then suddenly sort of burst into existence. And Trailer Park had been kicking around for a while, but hadn't ever had this meeting of, of talent, of the level of performers that were in it. And you really felt like you were able to see something that other people weren't able to see. You really felt like, oh, my God, this is an incredible opportunity to be a part of this. One thing that I think strikes me about this festival is there's such a mix of some real seasoned pros in all areas, the directors, the producers, the actors, the writers, mixed with some people who this is really the first thing that they've ever done. Yeah. And uh, it seems to make a really exciting blend. I think, um, I mean, it's funny because we sort of brag about different things depending what time it is. And about this time of year we're always saying, look at all of the Broadway stars that are going to be at the festival this year. We've got... Stephanie Abruzzo and Austin Tatius. We've got Kate Schindel and Megan Lawrence in Sympathy Jones. We've got Leah Delaria and Roller Derby. Um, but really, and that's just because we like getting people excited about oh, yeah. sell all the tickets. There's stars everywhere. Yeah. You know, more stars than there are in heaven. Um, but ultimately, I think the thing... We don't really exist to give um, Stephanie Abruzzo a badly paying job. I mean, she's always going to be able to work. Great talent can always find things to do. So it's not as much about that as it is the opportunity for Broadway people to work with people who are unknown, the people who it is their first show they've had produced or their first experience in New York. Like, the the chance to be in the same room with people with 20 years of Broadway experience, I think it's a really great thing because it refreshes everyone. I mean, people, people that are new to it learn from that experience, but I also think if you're an actor, you need to go back to this every now and again. You can't just keep doing you know, tours of My Fair Lady, which are fabulous, but, you know, you're stepping into someone else's shoes doing that. It's really nice to pull on a pair of shoes of your own. It's the chance to do new work's really rare and you need to have the opportunity to return to that, to stay sharp at your craft. So I think the opportunity for people to get them, get to be in the room is, is a really important thing for everyone. And you get some pretty established producers helping out and working on some of these things as well, don't you? Yeah, and I think, I mean, a lot of the, the, the great support that the industry provides is just in supporting the event. If you're someone like a Barry Weisler, you know, you, you can't develop 
34 shows. It's just not physically possible. <laughs> and, just, you, and you certainly don't want to have 400 musicals turning up in the mail because what do you do with that? You know, you just, they just becomes a big pile in the corner. So I think what we offer for those guys is another level of filter. You know, that we're not certainly saying the 34 that we produce are the only 34 that we could have done. There's a lot of shows that come to us each year that maybe weren't right at this moment but probably will be right for us to do in the future with another draft or a bit of a polish. Um, I think for commercial producers, instead of spending 250 grand developing one show and finding out afterwards whether it works or not, they can, you know, they look to us as, as a non-profit they can support because we are really doing a lot of that research and development work that an individual producer just can't do. You know, and there's no one else that really can do that if you're not someone like what we have the ability to do, which is, which is by putting 34 shows up, we're not necessarily saying one of these shows is going to be a hit, let's put all of our eggs in that basket and ride it to Broadway. We're sort of saying these 34 shows need to be seen, and a lot of them need to be seen for different reasons. Sometimes it's we just think this is a great talent. We think this is someone who their next show or their fifth show from now is going to be amazing. This is the show where they you need to discover them. You know, Some shows are ready to transfer. Some shows there's never going to be a commercial outlet for, and there shouldn't be. It's about exploring the art form. But there are very few kind of non-profits that can do this kind of new work stuff. They can take a gamble on these things because we spread the risk across 34 shows. One of the things that I was most proud of last year was um, the screens of Kitty Genovese, which um, guy, one of the writers of that, David Simpatico, has kind of subsequently become a really great friend. And he submitted that to us in the past, and the first time we just thought it was fantastic, but it was such a, a risky kind of piece. We were like, yeah, we still need to sell tickets. We, said, oh, we don't have the same commercial challenges that a commercial producer does, but we have some. <laughs> you know, still got to pay the bills each month. <laughs> And honestly, in our first year, we kind of chickened out from doing it. And then last year, we were at a point of like, well, what the hell? You know, let's just do it. It's a really great show. And it was one of the, I think, one of the great successes last year. Now, I don't know where David goes with that show, but subsequently he's written the book for the stage version of High School Musical. You know, he's writing all these Disney shows. And I think what's great for someone like... And he probably would have got those gigs anyway. This didn't necessarily have anything to do with that. But I think it's really useful for an artist like him as well as writing commercial projects. He has other things that he wants to do as well. And I think we allow that for him. We allow that opportunity for for something that's much riskier, that really it's not like, um, you know, uh, the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera Company is going to be able to do the screams of Kitty Genovese. If we don't do it in this environment, it just can't be done. But it really should be done. Mm-hmm. Now, you're taking over a lot of theatres during this festival. What are some of the venues that you're, uh, <laughs> that you're invading? Oh, taking over sounds a bit aggressive, doesn't it? We are the, the guest of. Um, uh, this year, we've sort of used different venues each year. Our, our focus is staying in Midtown, because we think it's important to be a part of the, the theatre district. We think it's important because it's where the writers are in the, the commercial industry is for one of our partners. It's where a lot of other shows are. It's where the audience knows to go. It makes it easy to run around and catch multiple shows and in it, a day. And it does. <laughs> and I, I love the Fringe each year, but every year I'll start going to something and I'll quickly have to pull out my Blackberry to do a Google Maps search because I have no idea where the theatre is. Um, and that's part of the, the joy of the Fringe, but I think one of the things that, that we're kind of serving a different need and one of the things I think is important for us is being in Midtown and 
and that kind of ease for producers to hop between different shows and things and audience and everyone is is a great thing. So this year we're at the Acorn Theatre Row, we're at St Clement's, Julia Miles, the Women's Project Theatre, which is a lovely space we're using for the first time. Uh, TBG, the Barrow Group space on 36th Street, I think that is. Um, where else are we this year? We're at 45th Street Theatre, which used to be the old primary stages space, which is a really nice small space. Uh, the Sage, which is on 7th Avenue, corner 7th and 47th. So we try to be in... Um, the spaces need to be sort of like 199 seats and smaller for part of the deal we have with uh, the unions and things as part of them. They sign off on one of the things that, that allows NIV to happen is we, on behalf of all the shows, go to the unions and, and have a side letter. And part of the thing is we have to be in venues smaller than a certain size. There's a cap on the number of performances we can do. The actors, if the show transfers, go with the show, things like that. So we are allowed to be in these midtown venues, but they have to be 199 seats and smaller. And then it's a choice for us each year of the venues. A, they're available, but probably most important, venues you can actually do musicals in. <laughs> yeah. A lot of smaller midtown spaces, you can fit sort of four people in a sink on it, but you can't really... Once you add a band and uh, an ensemble and this and that, even small music... Like a small play can be three people... Even a small musical that has three cast members, simply as a band member or two and a couple other people backstage and something or something, a small musical is still pretty big <laughs> and a big musical could be enormous. So part of the challenge for us is finding the right venues for it. One thing that's come up a lot over the past year is you know, seeing the, the shrinking number of producers willing to see Off-Broadway as a viable commercial outlet. And seeing as so many of the shows and some of the great shows I've seen at Nymph in the past are great shows, and I think they do deserve a yeah. commercial run, but they, aren't, they definitely aren't Broadway shows. What do you think needs to be done, or how is Nymph filling, or, or how can this work again so that smaller, like, for instance, just in the past, a great yeah. show that I thought was a great off-Broadway show was Ruthless. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's been plenty of shows like that that have, wouldn't have come to the attention of America and all over the country if yeah. they hadn't had a commercial run here. Yeah. So what needs to be done to get the off-Broadway musical scene healthy again? Man, it's a very hard question because a lot of things are out of our control. Um, Alter Boys was a great hit for us, for thousands of performance, but it was kind of like the last commercially successful off-Broadway musical. And even I? they, they make no bones about the fact that it's been three years and they still haven't recouped the yeah. whole investment on that. Yeah. And you shouldn't, a show shouldn't have to run, shouldn't run three years and not recoup. Um, and I don't really know what the answer to that is. It's it's a challenge. It's a changing face of this city as well. I, I think the biggest challenge about putting a musical on is the cost of real estate and the cost of media because we exist in an island and it's the media capital of the world and it's very noisy. It's very hard. There was a time. 15, I mean, you're talking Ruthless, what's that, the early 90s? So we're now talking more than 15 years ago. Was it early 90s? So it's a long time ago, you know. Well, there's been some others since then. But of course, but yeah. just in the case you're talking yeah. about. Um, and the, and I, look, I think that these everything's dying until the next big hit, you know. It's like two years ago movies were dead and then suddenly you have movies people want to see. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's part of the challenges. That's what shows people actually want to see. But even... The, the biggest challenge, I think, off-Broadway for musicals is partly the size of the cost of labour, but not even so much that. It's partly the cost of venues, but not even so much that. It's certainly the cost of media and marketing. It's very expensive to, to reach people now, and it's very challenging to, to do that. Uh, and I don't know what the solution necessarily is. There's part of me that thinks 
um, that we are also reaching a stage of that kind of meeting point of non-profit and commercial enterprises that that Roundabout and MTC are Broadway producers that have a non-profit base that supports them to put in to put product into Broadway houses that you know, and we certainly see a lot of what's happening off Broadway that's musical theatre is because of non-profit producers off Broadway that do it. And perhaps we are sort of reaching a time when we, when that's going to expand to help fill that gap. We maybe won't ever see a time where a show will consistently run for two or three years off Broadway as a musical like that. But maybe we'll see a cycle where uh, the 199-seat space at New World Stages becomes a year-round non-profit musical producer and shows can transfer from Nymph to extended three-month runs somewhere that where it's not necessarily about it being everyone needs to cash out and make an enormous success, but there's yeah. some other kind of middle ground that we can find that something needs to happen. Yeah, because I'm a fan of Broadway, but nothing yeah. makes... And despite the fact that some quirkier shows have been you know, having success on Broadway recently, nothing quite makes my skin crawl as hearing you know, somebody, you know, without mentioning specific mm. names, but talking about, okay, now... You know, because of financial needs, we need to figure out a way to make this show work on Broadway. And all I'm thinking is, this show doesn't. It, it's charm. You're just going to ruin it. It's you know. <laughs> or it's kind of like, what does make this show work on Broadway? Yeah. I mean, there's different kinds of questions. Because partly it's about defining what is the point of difference of this show. Like there's that sort of there's certain shows that are clearly Broadway shows because the the show has a certain brand and a certain scale, and you can open it with a kind of impact and there are shows where an audience is going to need to discover them and you need a different model for that of running it somewhere and transferring it. I don't think there's actually such a thing as this is a Broadway show and this isn't a Broadway show. That just seems small minded kind of thinking because there are shows that can reach 15,000 people a week and shows that can reach 5,000 people a week. I think you could make that case or 7,000 people a week. And you scale shows up and down because of that. And maybe there are certain things, you know, but as much as we need ABC News, we need Fox or Spike or whatever else. We we need to be able to fill other gaps for other audiences because this kind of mass broadcast, there is a product that suits everyone thing, isn't true. Unless it's wicked. Maybe <laughs> that's true. I don't know. Dave Stoke will tell you it is. Um, but I certainly think that there is always going to be a gap for alternative and there's going to be a, a gap for alternative in six and seven hundred seater venues. I kind of think we just push. Look, the actual change that's kind of happened is the off Broadway musical is now an on Broadway musical in a playhouse on Broadway, and it's that that this season, notwithstanding, it's going to be hard to. I imagine it will continue to be hard to have a lot of commercial plays running on Broadway because a lot of that audience sees MTC Roundabout and a number of you know, other non-profits in the city to see that kind of content. There'll always be some plays on Broadway, but a lot of those playhouses, I think, will just be inhabited by smaller, edgier commercial musicals now as a way of satisfying that audience that wanted... Well, Xanadu's certainly a prime example, as, as yeah. well as 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Yeah, and, and more will continue to come in. I think Spring Awakening is kind of an example of that. I think... Rent was one of the first examples of that. You're finding something that suits a different kind of theatre-goer. And it's that person that arrives in... And this doesn't mean it's like a smarter or dumber theatre-goer or a New Yorker versus a, a tourist. Because I think one of the things that, that is the genius of, of what the League has done of Broadway over the last 10 years is kind of, for better or worse, made 
a Broadway experience a commodity. A, a tourist wants a Broadway experience while they're here. But there's only a certain number of shows they've heard of. And some of them will come here and look down the list and go, well, really? Like, these are the only options? I think I'd rather have this, which has been Spelling Bee, which has been Rent, which is, I really want to see a Broadway show, but I want to see something that's a little bit kind of edgier and exciting and youthful. And not every show on Broadway needs to be that, but there will always, I think, need to be that option because there will always be a percentage of the theatre-going audience that come here that wants that. So if you can be the person that's giving them that on Broadway, then I think you're in with a fighting chance. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Before we wrap up, is there any points that you wanted to bring up that we didn't quite get to? Uh, I don't know. The funny thing about the festival each year is I do like a less and less of a hard sell about it. <laughs> I remember the first year, or other interviews, like, oh, there's these talking points. I have to get across to sell things in the festival. I think people kind of know what we do now. And I think if you like musicals and you're in New York, you've probably heard of the festival. You maybe don't want to see every show that we do. But there's probably two or three shows every year because the, we try and do a range of things that are exciting. And I think that one of the things we're most excited by this year is just the diversity of shows. Some things people have... People have this idea that what we do is this... Well, we, Nymph does those kind of youthful edgy shows or they do these kinds of you know, irreverent musical comedies that are all... Sure... But there's a lot of shows this year that are classic musicals that are like people that are doing something new with them, but are for people that just love musicals. You know, they're not trying to change the world with them. They're just trying to express a story they want to express in a classic musical comedy form or a classical, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein style musical, a narrative musical. And I think if people dig musical theatre, there's stuff that's going to be for them at Nymph. And we're also, the other thing that I think is going to be cool about the festival this year, um, and I might even come back and tell you, one thing, we've got this project that we're launching that's going to be called the Gorilla Musicals Project, where we are commissioning in a partnership with um, um, someone who I can't announce yet, but I'll later. Um, we commissioned the writing of these short little three-minute musicals that are going to interrupt things during the musicals and these spontaneous things that are happening across the festival that are going to be like little Easter eggs that some people are going to see and some people aren't. And they're going to be... Some people are going to get the chance to see it and feel like they saw this unique thing that happened for one time only and not. That's going to be kind of cool. I'm looking forward to that. And the other thing that's going to be really cool this year is we're trying to do some really big opening and closing night parties. And the opening is going to be at uh, next door to Hairspray's, this really big club. Um, it used to be called Temple. Now it's about to be called Touch. It's relaunching. And there's that's on the first night of the festival, on the last night of the festival at Arena on 41st Street. We're doing a big party. And they're free. It's going to be free drinks. It's going to be for people that love musical theatre that and love having a free drink. And that's <laughs> everyone I know, at least. It's going to be really great opening and closing things. We want to see as many people as possible there. We're really looking forward to seeing people that, that have had fun at, at Nymph at, join us at this because uh, all of the performers will be there, the artists will be there, and hopefully a lot of audience members will be there and we can have a drink together and, and talk about what's happening. Yeah, I really want to drill in, too, that um, for people who are, like, avid goers and want to catch a lot of shows, yeah. they really should get in on the memberships because yeah. they're a great deal. They actually don't come out to be much more than what a ticket price would be. It gets you a whole bunch of other things And it gets you a whole well. bunch of other things, and you can book early, and a lot of the shows do sell out. So. Yeah, and you get, like, I think if there's a particular show you want to see and you want to see it on a Friday and Saturday night, you won't be able to see that performance unless you get a membership. Should we do that again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'd... it's... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I think if there are if there are particular shows you want to see and there's a Friday or Saturday night performance, then I think you should grab a membership because those shows all sell out. And, you know, you get added benefits and things like that. So it's a really great thing to do. Um, cool. All right. Well, thanks for joining us again. And if, you, if you're if you enchanted, check out his interview again in uh, the very <laughs> first episode. still available. Oh, I sounded so young then. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming by. Thanks a lot. On the boards. White supremacist and Al-Qaeda meet Gilbert and Sullivan in this new musical, The Beastly Bombing, playing at NY at the New York Musical Theatre Festival. And we've got the producer, Patrick J. Shields, and a cast member, Jesse Merlin, here to talk with us. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Fine, thanks. Yeah. Maybe introduce yourselves so the listeners can connect your name with your voice. <laughs> well, I'm uh, Pat Shields. I am an, an old friend of Roger Neal, the composer, and... I uh, took on the Beastly Bombing after having previously worked with Roger uh, years ago on uh, some music for a short film. And um, most people in New York City know me because I have a 20-year-old residential window cleaning company called Shields Window Cleaning. And aside from that and various uh, board duties that I've done over the years, including one at a, uh, for a lengthy period at a film festival, and then nonstop, pretty much political fundraising for the last seven years. This is my re-entry full-time into the world of, of theater and producing. So, glad to be here. All right. Great. My name is Jesse Merlin. I uh, star in this show as the President of the United States. Uh, very specifically, not Bush. Uh, more of a sexually deviant modern major general figure who has some written parallels. But I, I try and play him as differently from Bush as possible. Um, I've been in, in this project from the beginning, um, and my background before this had all been in opera. I had started in Gilbert and Sullivan, but I did about 35 roles in opera, mostly in Italian, French, and German. So this is kind of my re-entry to the English language and to uh, the comic opera and operetta art form, which is one I really love and one that until now, until this show, has not really been written in in quite a long time. The last real comic opera I could name that was produced was about 40 years ago. And it was called Gallantry by Douglas Moore. So this is a very, very new idiom uh, to a modern audience, I would say. Guy, guys like me who listen to guys like that speak <laughs> cower in fear. <laughs> what a voice. Yes. Thank you. So what is, what is the beastly bombing about? I guess what, what goes on? What, and, and how is it married in with this Gilbert and Sullivan style? Well, quite simply, the, the story is about uh, a couple of sets of bumbling uh, wannabe terrorist uh, groups. The two white supremacists at the beginning of the show happen uh, upon two al-Qaeda terrorists. They have both arrived to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge, and their efforts naturally, because of the comic genre we've chosen, cancel each other out, though while they're standing there working out their differences and learning about each other... In song. In song. <laughs> Someone else uh, blows up the Brooklyn Bridge, unbeknownst to them and the audience, so they have to go on the run. And uh, you want to pick it up from here, Jesse? Well, the theatrical conceit of the piece, which is, I think, really clever and fun, is just to be as offensive to as many different groups as possible. So they're on the run. Their clothes are all ruined. They happen upon a Hasidic Jewish clothing shop uh, and have to get into Hasidic Jewish, uh, you know, high religious garb and sing a big musical number called I Hate the Jews, as sung by a Hasidic Jew singing about how he hates secular Jews. 
And then, you know, later on, the president arrives. Uh, he's got two drugged-out daughters who sing a love song to drugs. I, uh, the president has a homoerotic love scene, dream ballet with Jesus. Um, there's um, a pedophile priest who sings a can-can about uh, how he loves little boys. So we really try to leave nobody out. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's an equal opportunity uh, offender. <laughs> Is this a good time maybe to go into the first song we're going to play from the demo? Sure. So anything that needs to be set up here? Uh, we're going to go with uh, uh, The Bravest President or Delightful yeah. Little Bomb. Why don't we start with uh, Delightful Little Bomb and then come back to you later in the show? Right, so we have the backdrop Since of the Brooklyn the Bridge here. This is the opening of the show. Okay. And this is sung by uh, Jacob Sidney uh, as Patrick, the lead uh, white supremacist, and then joined by Aaron Medici. America is the greatest land we have known upon our great green earth. It's a land I know I would die for. It's the land that gave birth to my birth. It's got purple mountain majesties. It's got fruited plain and waves of green. From the mountains to the prairies, California to the coast of Maine. It's a land of wondrous principles It's a land that's home to the free It's a land some say is invincible It's a land that created liberty It's a participatory democracy So we must be proud and participate Cause it's such a great democracy We the people control our fate Sometimes when the future does not seem bright Sweet Miss Liberty could come to harm Some of us realize we must protect To do that is with a bomb. A delightful little bomb, a fine and lovely fuse, could quietly with great upon her proper gate abuse. There, the bridge ahead we see, destroy it to be free. Iron girders, cables, beams, concrete, steel, and history to rubbish pile little bomb, a fine and lovely fuse, could quietly with greater plumb have propagate our views. As a nation we are rich, we are rich with privilege, and what a pleasant privilege to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge. When the leaders of our country make you feel you don't belong When freedom has been mortgaged and they'll sell it for a song It's best to kill some people so everyone knows they voted wrong Delightful little bum, 
Her fine and lovely fuse Could quietly regret upon her propagate our views There the bridge ahead we see We'll destroy it to be free Iron girders, cables, beams, concrete, steel And history to rubbish pile for we to a rubbish pile from we throw we throw we to a rubbish pile and the dustbin of history to bomb a fine and lovely fuse quietly with great applause to propagate our views and a nation we are rich we are rich with privilege and what a pleasant privilege you blow 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 up the Brooklyn Bridge so uh Jesse despite your uh your operatic ways and, and your speaking voice, I understand you have a predilection towards the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That is, uh, <laughs> I, I have to confess, shamefacedly, no, well, not really, it is a hobby of mine. I, uh, I travel around for auditions and for work in opera a lot, and often the most enjoyable part of that is uh, guest performing with the local Rocky Horror troupe wherever I happen to be staying. Uh, I've been seeing a show here at the Fringe Festival right now, and so I performed for the last two weeks with the New Jersey and New York casts of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I've done it as far away as uh, Paris, all over California, Atlanta, and uh, on the stage of the Hollywood Bowl. So it's uh, it's uh, my favorite obsession, or one of them anyway. <laughs> so do you get to get any of that dual personality out in this character playing the as president? As the president? Yeah. Yeah, the president is really... Um, is for me kind of represents the worst elements of Bush and Clinton. He wants to have wild sex and drop bombs on people. That's all. That's the core of his identity. So I kind of view him as he's just like a raw nerve. He's this live wire. He's a big stack of id. He's kind of like Ignatius and Confederacy of Dunces, which, like the writer uh, Julian Nitzberg of the show, is probably one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, but just to give you an idea of it, in the opening song, I glad hand the audience, I have a photo op, I meet people, uh, I end up uh, molesting a woman uh, that I choose differently every night and getting pulled off of her by one of my aides, and then later on I hump some poor unsuspecting man's face in the front row while uh, singing. I can even stay soft while watching really hot gay porn in a very loud operatic voice. So, so there's the incongruity of what I'm saying and the manner in which I'm saying or singing it which is really highfalutin and loud and operatic, but also really grotesque and vulgar and weird. So that's kind of the, the take on it. So, Patrick, what drew you to this show? <laughs> well, As your re-entry from the window-washing world back into producing. Uh, a couple of things. One is, um, I think like a lot of people, I'm a, I'm a secret musical theater fan, and um, uh, certainly over the years as a... Uh, both an opera fan and a uh, you know classical music fan, I've always had a uh, an appreciation for the the more um, more complete um, uh, historical uh, you know well uh, well composed works such as Gilbert and Sullivan uh, you know like nineteenth century type of musical theaters is just right on for me because I really love to listen to orchestral work and. Um, my personal relationship with Roger um, really, really led me to an understanding that his uh, historical knowledge was far greater than I had even imagined. And the idea that he was going to truly faithfully represent a Gilbert and Sullivan style operetta was so appealing to me, and he nailed it. And the second I heard the score, I immediately jumped on board. All right, so we, should we take a listen to Jesse, your song from the show? Yes, so just to set it up, um, 
the all four terrorists dressed in Hasidic Jewish garb at this point have been arrested by uh, and are waiting and languishing in jail with uh, the president's two dragged out daughters. At which point there's a huge explosion and someone else blows up the Brooklyn Bridge and they're all completely devastated because it wasn't them and they don't know who did it. And at that point there's this huge flourish and fanfare and uh, this, this rather stern voice of Roger Neal announces the, the entrance of President Sterling Dodgson. So here we are. I am the bravest president who ever here a night has spent as the White House president. With the people's great consent, by God I have been heaven sensing. I am the bravest president of the USA. Little caring less, that's the secret of my success. The more you know, the less you do. The more you think, the more you're screwed. I'm an active president who likes to act. That's why I say fuck all to the facts. Knowing little caring less, that's the secret of my success. I'm the bravest president of the USA. I can dance all night, even with a corn. I can shake hands with people who are lowly born. At a military funeral, I can make believe I mourn. I can even stay soft while watching really hot gay porn. Singing, is the bravest president of the USA. I can eat chili with a lot of spice. I can play Parcheesi without any dice. I can speak in lots of ways that aren't precise. I can even ignore when smart folks give me really good advice. I am the bravest president who ever here a night has spent as the White House president. With the people's great consent, by God, I have been heaven sensing. I am the bravest president. Mr. President, there's a major problem of brew. You have to admit I am braver than all of you. Mr. President, we truly need you right now. When I see me, I just want to shout, wow! Mr. President, there's a crisis in the land. You know I'm the bravest chiefer in command. Mr. President, we have a really bad thing. When I see myself, I just have to see. Cause I am the bravest president who ever here a night has spent as the White House president with the people's great consent. By God, I have been heaven sensing. President of the USA. We just played a short segment of that. The song goes on for quite a while. So I guess now we need all the kind of information. When does the show start and close with Nymph? The show begins on October 2nd and we run through October 7th. So that is the Tuesday and Friday, the final week of Nymph. Now, uh, what theaters is that? 
It's at the Julia Miles Theater. It's in the uh, WPP Women's Project, the old converted church on 55th Street at 424 West 55th between 9th and 10th. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming down and chatting about the show. It was great talking to you, Patrick and Jesse, about the beastly bombing. And best of luck with you. Thank you for having us. We're looking forward to seeing you at NIMF. The Call Board. Starting August 21st, Tony Award winner Michelle Pauk will join the cast of Hairspray in the role of Velma Von Tussel at Broadway's Neil Simon Theater, 250 West 52nd Street. Then on August 22nd, Cabaret singer Nancy Stearns will perform as part of the Any Wednesday series at Lincoln Center. For any questions, comments, or require further information, please contact Bart Greenberg at anywednesdaybn at aol.com or 212-595-9340. Starting August 30th, Fringe NYC Encore series begins. Now in its second year, producer Britt LaField will again allow theater lovers to get a second chance at seeing some of the festival's favorite shows with the Fringe NYC Encore series. Fringe NYC Encore series runs August 30th through September 16th. Tickets will be $18 and go on sale Monday, August 27th. For more information, visit www.fringenyc-encores.com. Then on Monday, September 3rd, 2007, an exclusive screening of the upcoming film Across the Universe will take place at the Sony Building Screening Room, followed by a rare conversation with the film's director and director of The Lion King, Julie Taymor. Proceeds from this event will go to benefit Broadway Cares, Equity Fights, AIDS. To buy tickets, call 212-840-0770, extension 268, or visit www.broadwaycares.org for additional information. Also, I'm going to announce the four winners of the Legally Blonde cast album. Not only do they get the cast album on CD, but it has been signed by cast members Kate Schindel and Richard Blake, who are on in Volume 123. And the winners are, drumroll, Kay DeWitt of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Lisa Scully of Bloomington, Indiana, David Folds of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, and last, Melissa Magliulia. I know I just mass- <laughs> I just massacred that name, and I want to let Melissa know that no, I'm not Mr. Gilbo. Uh, I don't even think that's my dad. <laughs> I don't want to be Mr. Gilbo. It can be just Michael. And Melissa Maglilia is from Poughkeepsie, New York. Also, I'd like to say the callboard is sponsored by me. You can uh, if you got any recording you need done. I got a great studio here right in Times Square on 43rd and 8th. Got reasonable rates. Uh, don't just do musical theater. Do Pop, R&B, rock, and hip-hop, especially focus on uh, small groups or singers who need to put together other artists in a thing, not necessarily full bands. But uh, if you're looking to get some recording done, get some great quality, got great rates, you can give me a buzz at 646-345-3433. And if you're uh, looking to buy, sell, or rent in an apartment in New York City and are sick of dealing with uh, real estate agents that uh, don't seem to have... uh, (laughs) many scruples. My business partner, Dave, is an agent, and if you just let him know that Broadway Bullet sent you, he'll get you the best attention possible. It's 646-920-3402 to get a hold of him. uh, That's Dave. All right, I'll see you next week on The Call Board. On the board. Cut Man is a boxing musical at the New York Musical Theatre Festival as part of the Developmental Reading Series. They've got a lot of stuff going on at the festival. We currently have Jared Casalia, Drew Brody, and Corey Grant here with us. Why don't you guys quick introduce yourselves again by name and what you do so people can connect the, 
the name with the voice. Why don't you start, Mr. Casalia? <laughs> I'll start. It's it's actually Casalia, but that's okay. I won't fault you for that. <sighs> uh, but yes, uh, my name is Jared Casalia. I'm the writer-director of Cutman, a boxing musical. Uh, my name is Drew Brody. I'm composer and lyricist of Cutman, a boxing musical. And I'm Corey Grant, and I'm a writer of the musical, and I'm also playing the lead role, Ari, in the reading. Ari the Havoc Hoffman. All right, so I guess this begs the first question. Boxing musical. Um, when most people think of like the traditional musical theater demographic, they think women and gay men. I, I know many of our listeners would beg to differ, but... Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> where does the appeal of a boxing musical fit in? I think in just to fight that stereotype, I think right off the bat, I think we set out to do something that we thought was masculine and we thought touched on sports very specifically because we hadn't seen anything like that, you know? There hasn't been a boxing musical since Golden Boy with Sammy Davis Jr. Not that I've heard any of it, but I hear it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a long time ago. I've got the record, but I can't play it, you know? <laughs> I don't have a record player. I think I think the typical musical theater demographics will love this musical as well because the music certainly is within the genre of uh, musical theater. Um, but it also has a, a, a lot more contemporary influences, um, and very often the boxing world is very intimately connected with the hip-hop and the R&B world as well. The two just kind of have a natural marriage. Um, I don't know you don't see that at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's racial. It's uh, are there, are there black it's cultural. In boxing? <laughs> a few, a few, yeah, yeah. And more Jews than you would think. A lot more Jews than you would think. Yeah. Um, boxing actually started with a very large Jewish uh, participant ratio back when the immigrants first came to the states. Well, historically, boxing is very much an immigrant sport. Whatever yeah, country, it's, so. it's 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 driven by poor the poorer people in the area with a. A need to, even at small levels, make a bit of cash and, and get by, and it kind of evolved from there as a sport. Yeah. And the same is true of our lead character, Ari Hoffman. He definitely comes from poverty, and boxing is really his way into not only the limelight and the fame that he wants uh, from life, but also money. And money becomes a big factor in what happens in the play, definitely. Money has something to do with boxing? <laughs> <laughs> Hip-hop? Money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, Oscar De La Hoya was, you know, not many people know this. He was the second largest uh, income maker last year uh, of any other athlete. The only other athlete that beat him was Tiger Woods. But oh, really? Oscar De La Hoya made $55 million last year uh, because of his fight with Floyd Mayweather. Which but was... with inflation, that's not much. <laughs> um, well, before we go a little bit further, why don't we take a listen to one of the songs from the show, this from your demo, um, is there something you want to say to set this song up? Uh, this is uh, the song that's the title song of the show uh, called Cut Man. And this is Ari's father. Uh, this is towards the end of the first act when uh, Ari informs him that he will no longer be his trainer, but instead Ari wants him to be his cut man, which is sort of a, a, a knock for the father. Don't you just tear my heart out Why don't you just knock me down You are my son And even you don't want me You might make your way to greatness 
hands Shouldn't I be the one to show you how You are my son You are my creation I gave up long ago on having any dreams of my own Every child outgrows his father I know that's just the way that it goes Now you're asking me to be your card man I was never meant for glory I would only get halfway, but look at my son, moving on without me. Lord, I'll be his good man, if that's all he wants from me. A big finish. The wonderful Tony Perry on the vocals for uh, that particular track on the demo. Uh, for people who have missed, like, Million Dollar Baby, you know, and all the boxing movies in Rocky, what's a cut man? A cut man is the man in your corner with the bucket. And he uh, is the guy who irons out your face when it's swollen and uses coagulants to plug up your bloody... Cuts. Noses and cuts, <laughs> as it were. You know, often fights are stopped because of the bleeding that's coming from a cut, so the cut man can become a very instrumental part of the fight and can keep you for fighting another few rounds and give you the opportunity to knock the other guy out. But if he doesn't stop that bleeding, if he's not there to heal you, you could be in a lot of trouble. And uh, in the course of the play, you know, Ari's father, Eli, who is a, a former cut man uh, to Marvin Hagler in our play, who hasn't been a cut man for 20 years. He's taken over as the custodian at the local synagogue and has been training Ari, his son, in the basement of the synagogue for 20 years. 
And Ari has all these ambitions of going pro and that his father will usher him into the limelight. Um, but it never happens. Eli just holds him back and doesn't want him being exposed to the real world. And finally, at the start of our play, Ari goes off, finds another trainer, gets hooked up with a very big promoter named Mo Green, a la Don King, and they usher him into the limelight. Um, the angle for them, though, is that... Uh, a Jewish boxer, you don't see too many of those nowadays. There are a few out there, uh, a few great ones out there, actually, who we've had the pleasure of seeing fight, but uh, not too many. So this is a, kind of a, a unique story in that sense. Now, uh, Drew, that, that, the track we just listened to has kind of a distinctly kind of R&B, gospel soul kind of flavor in it. Is, is a lot of the music influenced by some urban... In- uh, the music is... Uh, yeah, yes... It is. The music has a, a lot of different cultural influences. You've got, you've got R&B, you've got hip-hop, you've got gospel, but you've also got rock, you've got traditional musical theater, you have everything. And it's not, it wasn't the case that we were like, oh, we want one of everything. It was really we were trying to figure out what is necessitated by these characters and by their experiences. And Ari, Ari's life is very multicultural, and we're trying to reflect that. He's sort of our, our, our character that we see the world through in this show. And because he comes from this Jewish background in Queens and uh, but, you know, lives in this world of boxing and a very contemporary modern world, you know, there is all that is reflected in the music. It's not a it's not a gimmick. It's actually part of very true to their characters experiences. Okay, so what's the next song we're going to be listening to here from your demo? Uh, The next song comes at the very end of the first act. Uh, What has happened is that the promoter Mo Green who has been sort of, you know, definitely helping Ari into the limelight, but also at the same time exploiting the fact that he's Jewish for publicity's sake, that sort of thing. And he sets up a fight on uh, Yom Kippur. And this becomes sort of the central conflict of the first act. Should Ari take this fight? In the end, he decides to take it. And this comes at the end of the first act as we're sort of ramping up to the fight. It's called Friday Night Title Fight. Ladies and gentlemen, the house my dad's coming down tonight. Friday Night Title Fight. We got the HBO National Pro Review right on the dock. Nine o'clock, time slot. 50,000 people under the dome. My father, he made Washington home. You know, ever since I saw that they were linking, I was thinking he could really hook him in. And now he did. My plan was perfect. Everything worked. Who in a mind if I had a Jewish kid on your own before? People would rather pay to see a sinner than a saint. Ours is a little. Mo makes bank. Let's see if we are dead, my guy. Please, please, your applause. At the scene in the arena, we got people on their feet already. Jews and blacks, blacks and Jews. Everybody's cheering for the champion shoes. People sweating and crying, just to find and prophesizing. Winter places, he's a face and dancing and dying. It's hysteria. Tell me where you're gonna get a better night of entertainment. I'm tearing ya. Small publicity machinery. If you got a press of bad, you should bet on me. You see, these guys are both my guys. Whichever one flies, more gets the prize. So let's hear a clip of them, my guys. These heroes need your applause. And these boys are working hard.
welcome you to Madison Square Garden in New York City. Tonight's All-Star Main Event is presented by Mo Green Promotions and HBO Boxing. At this time, I'd like to introduce our third man in the ring tonight, referee Richard Steele. Fight fans, here we go. 12 rounds of boxing action for the undisputed welterweight championship of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to White trim fighting out of Queens, New York. He weighed in at a perfect 147 pounds. He's undefeated in his campaign in the ring with a record of 10 big wins, all by way of knockout. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your contender for the evening, Ari the Havoc. His opponent fighting out of the red corner wearing black trunks with red trim and also weighed in at the welterweight limit of 147 pounds. He has an outstanding record of 43 wins, two losses with 36 pressure wins by way of knockout. Ladies and gentlemen, here is your current undisputed welterweight champion of the world, So what do you find are the biggest challenges in getting ready to uh, carry the energy and the life of the musical across in a reading? Well, from a musical perspective, this is a show that was written, you know, not just for like a Broadway size orchestra, but also, you know, eventually we'd like to have DJ in the pit, you know, have, you know, really full scale, uh, you know, as big of a musical production as possible. But in the reading, it's going to be, you know, piano, drums and bass. And we got to make do with that. So that's been a challenge for this reading to still get the songs across and the energy across without perhaps the production and the instrumentation we would ultimately desire. I think we're all really happy to have a reading and not have to do a production entailing costumes and lighting design and all the facets of putting on a full show. And I think we're really excited to just focus on the work, cast the thing, and kind of give you the distilled story and see if people respond to that. Absolutely. if you don't have that, then all the other stuff is just fluff. Absolutely. And this is the world premiere. This is the first time we've ever presented this work, which is about, we've been at this for about two years underground working on this. So this is literally the first underground. Literally underground. We dug a hole. We've been in it hiding, boxing with each other and writing music. Mole people. <laughs> but this is our first time to kind of show it to the world. So uh, it's exciting for us. Now this is happening on October 4th and 6th. Yes. Correct. And uh, they can go to nymph.org for dates or I assume you got it at cutmanthemusical.com. If you go yes. to cutmanthemusical.com, you'll find everything you need. You can join the fight on MySpace slash Cutman, a boxing musical. Uh, you'll find us there as well, and uh, we're excited to have you at the uh, beginning of October. We got two shows on the fourth: one at four thirty, another at eight p.m., and then a one o'clock matinee on the sixth. 
All right, so Jared, Drew, and Corey, I'm so glad you're able to stop by and chat with us about your show. Thanks and, for having me. Oh, so much pleasure. Good luck. On the positive side. Hi, this is Marty Cooper once again, back from a bad back problem. Actually, this two weeks ago was uh, Michael's fault. Uh, this week was mine. So once again, I'm on the positive side, and... Uh, Grease is the word. Anyone listening to this cast probably have read the um, scary reviews of Grease. Actually, I think the kindest was uh, the news, who really didn't like it, but he had actually some good things to say about certain people. I'm going to talk about some recollections of Grease. I'm actually looking forward to seeing this because I want to see how bad it is for myself. You know, I'll probably love it, you know, me being contrary to most critics, as I love the... Uh, 2000 production of Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, people used to look at me with the head on the side saying, really? Get out of here. Anyway, my recollections of Greece, uh, for the few years that it played in the 70s, it moved from 2nd Avenue, the Eden Theater, up to uh, Broadway, the Royale, which is now I think the uh, Jacobs. Well, in any case, I stayed away from the show because I found the ads on TV at the time so obnoxious that I thought I'd have no desire to see this. But when the movie came out with the lovely Olivia Newton-John and the lovely John Travolta, actually now he's called the lovely John Travolta, I had a hankering to see it. And uh, I came down to the Low State on opening day, Low State, which was at the time on 45th and Broadway, the theater where, by the way, six months earlier, uh, Saturday Night Fever had its made its debut. So this is six months later, and we have another... Big musical with John Travolta, or as I nicknamed them, uh, John Revolting and Olivia Neutron Bomb. In any case, so I went opening day, and uh, I knew nothing about Greece. I didn't have the recording. I hadn't seen the show. And all of a sudden, I see the uh, logo, the Paramount logo at the beginning, and I hear this welling up of music, and I see this rolling tide coming in and hearing this gorgeous uh, Love is a Many Splendid thing. And I said to myself, gee, I came into the wrong theater. I'm watching a Cinemascope love story. And then I see the two leads and I figure, oh, I made the right move. And uh, the brilliant beginning of that movie with the, uh, with the animated opening and, of course, Grease is the Word song. And I said, hey, this will do. And, and that evening I read the reviews and the reviews for the movie were bad. And it, as it turns out, it was one of the most successful musicals ever. And then I went to see the show on Broadway, and the movie had nothing to do with the show. To me, the movie just kind of cleaned up its act. It made it squeaky clean, and uh, the show wasn't. The show was a bunch of, I think, rebellious middle-aged people recollecting their years in high school. It was kind of a different trip than the squeaky clean movie. Then in, uh, in 1991, I saw Grease in London with Deborah Gibson. Loved it. They used all the movie songs, exciting production, great dancing, great singing. And then the Weislers opened up their revival in 1994. Hated that. And I saw it a few times because I always had friends doing it. First of all, they didn't spend, yeah, they didn't give Robert Stigwood any money to buy the movie songs. And so to me, it fell flat. What they did in that show, for Teen Angel, they cast a gratuitous black person to play Teen Angel just to make the show a little black. To me, I know, I know a lot of ethnic people kind of steered away from Greece because they thought it was 
a very white show and a very white story, but that's what it was. And in a way, it was kind of poking fun of that at that whole era, that, that we had no ethnic people. And to use Billy Porter as a gratuitous black person, and he's a very talented guy, but Greece wasn't the show for him. I've seen him in other things, and he's wonderful. I'm not putting down the use there, but as I say, I thought it was gratuitous, and I thought it was kind of appeasing an audience when that isn't what Greece is about. I thought the production was stilted. It was done in a, a framed stage. Everything was small, and everything, they used day-glow colors in the show, which aren't what the 50s are about. In any case, I thought it was a mess, and every time I saw it, and I saw it about five or six times because there were people I wanted to see in the show, I wanted to kick myself for taking up two and a half hours of my time. I know in my heart that this production has got to be somewhat better. I hope the two young people that they picked on uh, uh, You're the One That I Want, I hope they work out. I hope they're good. I'm seeing at the end of uh, September, and I hope to have a good time. I actually love the music for the show. I think it's, I, th I think the score songs, especially using the few songs they added in the movie, are great. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope it's a success, despite some of the reviews. Now, if you have any opinions on what I just talked about, uh, you can email me at broadwaymarty, one word, at aol.com. And once again, even if you do see Greece this week, stay on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. On the boards. The kids left, the dog died, now what? Now, it's a musical at the New York Musical Theater Festival. understand the creators really wanted to create that quintessential baby boomer musical. And with us we have Carol Lahner, who's the author. Michael Schell, who's one of the actors, and Hillary Adams, the director. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Want to introduce yourselves so our listeners can connect the names with the voices? No, hi, I'm Michael Schell. I'm Hillary Adams. And I'm Carol Lawner. So, uh, first off, what is the show about? Kind of what inspired it? And, you know, feel free to just all pile in there. Well, when I realized there were 78 million baby boomers out there without any musical directly for them, I decided it would be fun to write a musical about what we're all going through. And it's a little bit unique because we've never gone through it before. And so we've, I've picked 20 people to talk about, and five characters are playing these different 20 roles, and we're trying to analyze what it is like to be a baby boomer. Well, my guess, Michael, is that uh, this obviously sounds like a lot of great parts for you know, people who aren't young ingenues. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> we're now old ingenues, I guess. Uh, but we're having a great time, and um, I think the uh, musical certainly has a lot of potential for uh, the audience, um, Carol described. And we're, um, we're also, since we're of that certain age, um, <clears throat> we're, uh, we're getting an opportunity to, instead of living the past, of living the present. And uh, that's very helpful, and we're having fun with it. I think it's also really important this musical focuses on the future, that the big question is now what? And these baby boomers are looking forward to figuring out now what? Now what's the next step in their life? 
the whole concept of a second adulthood, I think, is very appealing and uh, deviates from the traditional view of the aging process. And that's what we're looking at. Well, I think the songs really speak a lot for themselves. So before we go a little bit further, why don't we... Uh why don't we go for one of the songs you brought in your talented cast and brought in your musical directors. So what's the first song that everybody's going to perform for us here? The first song is I Just Want to Love Again, um, performed by Marsha Mercant, and our musical director is Rick Hip Flores. All right, let's take a listen. When Roger left two years ago, I thought, well, this is it. I'll never find another guy willing to commit. But suddenly my phone is ringing, ringing off the hook. No longer am I all alone No longer do I stay at home No need for me to have to cook They take me out for pool and poker Grab a bite and home by ten Short ones, tall ones, thin ones, fat ones, men They want me to be what I don't want to be and as for me, I just want to love again. Now Gary was a handsome fella, sensitive and bright. We danced and went to concerts. On the cheek, we kissed goodnight. I thought that I might let him stay. Just look at me, a fool. That was the night before the day He left from work with three weeks' pay And ran off with his friend Raoul They take me out for Chinese dinners Grab a bite and home by ten Rich ones, poor ones, smart ones, sad ones, men They want me to be what I don't want to be And as for me I just want to love again. There was this handsome undertaker guy my sister knew. Not just some male heartbreaker, no, a good man through and through. He smiled as he took my hand, I felt a jolt inside. His hand, it smelled of Old Spice and formaldehyde. They take me out for beer and bowling. Grab a bite and home by ten. Weird ones, dumb ones, pierced ones, bald ones, men. They want me to be what I don't want to be. And as for me, I just want to love again But tonight I think there's hope because it seems like deja vu In college we were on the brink but somehow it fell through I'm really kind of panicked wondering can I really cope I mustn't let him think I'm scared I've got to act like I'm prepared Cause where there's life, there's hope He'll take me out, we'll just go walking Grab a bite and walk some more I know we'll do lots of talking Then will it come to an end? I 
great, fantastic. I understand that you guys haven't even had an official rehearsal yet, that you kind of just brought everybody together quick to get ready for the performance on the show. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds great. So what have been kind of the, the steps getting ready for the show for Nymph here as you're getting ready for all this craziness coming up? Well, the show's been through a number of different um, reviews and um, and sort of, uh, I'm going to start that over again. The show's been through a number of revisions and reading processes. And Carol's been working on it for a number of years. About 20. I understand, in fact, Carol, that you were just recently on an NBC show. Uh, Well, they were interested to know what grandmothers do at this age, and I was mainly trying to get the point across is we just never stop. We just try try to be the best we can possibly be, and if it's in this form, fine. And there's lots of people doing lots of different things, and that's the point we want to get out in this musical. Yeah, the point is similar to that you get a chance to plug your show on NBC. They sure did. (laughs) That was the only way I went on. (laughs) So what are some of the projects you've been involved with in the past, Michael? Ooh, um, well, more recently, I guess the biggest thing I was uh, connected with was the Titanic, the first national tour of Titanic, um, the Broadway musical Titanic. And um, I just, I, I do shows as they come up and become available for me to do, and somebody hires me. <laughs> he has a very interesting story is how he got to where he is right now as a baby boomer. Will you tell that, Michael? Yeah, sure. I it. it that's true. It's um, very closely related to this show, in a sense. Um, uh, to make a long story short, my wife and I decided, nearly 20 years ago now, um, that late in life, after our children were grown and out of the house, that uh, we should come to New York and explore our, uh, our dreams, uh, our young dreams. And uh, my dream of becoming an actor-singer and hers of uh, writing and also just experiencing New York. My wife loves New York. <laughs> and uh, so we were able to do that, and we've, um, it's been a great journey. We've had a great deal of fun. And, uh, what can I say? The rest is history, as they say. All right, well, we got somebody else here ready to perform another song here in the yeah. studio from your show. So, uh, who's performing this? What's this song? Anything that needs to be set up? The, who's performing it is Mary Jo McConnell and Ron Bagden, and it's called Perfect Bliss. I'm one of the good guys. I would never cheat on my wife. On a scale of one to ten, I'll mark nine for a damn good life. I'm one of the lucky girls, cause I married the guy of my dreams. We're the picture of Nothing is as it seems. Boredom sets in from time to time when I think of what might have been. I got caught in the thrill of the moment. Let's see, where do I begin? I'm on a business trip to Kentucky. It is late, I go out for a bite. There's a scowl all alone at a table. She is wearing a dress kinda tight. I'm out shopping and run into Andrew. He still looks like a big football star. Well, he throws me a pass and I catch it. And we stop for a drink at the bar. And we dance. 
sand, I'm floating on cloud nine. The rhythm is moving my feet. My heart is skipping a beat. And we dance, and I'm floating on cloud nine. I'm not thinking what's right or what's wrong. I haven't felt this in so long. So we dance. I sense she is willing and able as she flashes me one sexy smile. I'm a 50-year-old married fellow. What's the harm if we talk for a while? We were boyfriend and girlfriend in high school. We broke up over some silly fight. Now he tells me that he's always loved me. We make plans to meet later that night. And we dance, and I'm floating on cloud nine. I don't care if I'm morally twisted. I did not know these feelings existed. And we dance, and I'm floating on cloud nine. I feel like I did at 16. What happens remains to be seen. And we dance. I sit down and the chemistry kicks in. I'm excited for what lies in store. He has flowers, a bottle of fine wine. I'm in awe of her exquisite face. He is flirting and I'm simply melting. I am dazzled by her charm and grace. Then we dance and I'm floating on cloud nine. Next she nestles her head on my shoulder. I want to do more than just hold her. Then we dance, and I'm floating on cloud nine. He moves closer and gives me a grin. Chills break out all over my skin. I refuse to address any doubt. But this voice from within struggles out. This voice from within struggles out. So we dance. All right, so people looking to catch the kids left, the dog died now, what, for the New York Musical Theater Festival, where do they go and when? We'll be performing at the TBG Theater, which is the Barrow Group Theater, uh, starting on the 25th of September. First show is at 8 o'clock that night, and that's located at 312 West 36th Street. And when's the last show in your run? The last show is the 7th of October at 1 p.m. All right, well, thank you so much for coming down and talking about the show and bringing in all the great performers. It was, it was a joy. Thanks so much. Thank you thank so you. much for having us. Top of the Trades. With not a lot of time left in this program, Top of the Trades will once again be delivered in Speed News. You can find the links at uh, broadwaybullet.com and our show notes for Volume 125. So here it goes. Pascal and Rapp extend rent engagement to 1007. Rent producers have announced that Adam Pascal and Anthony Rapp, who originated the roles of Roger Davis and Mark Cohen in the landmark Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award musical, will extend their return engagement on the show for four weeks through Sunday, October 7th. Kevin Klein, Jennifer Gardner, set for Broadway Siren under Bergerac. The 10-week limited engagement, directed by David Laveau, Fiddler on the Roof, Nine, Jumper's a Real Thing, will be performed with text translated and adapted by Anthony Burgess from A Clockwork Orange. Previews will begin October 12th at the Richard Rogers Theater. Plummer Rose, etc. is set for 2008 Stratford Festival. The season will feature the Music Man and Cabaret, and Christopher Plummer will return to the festival stage to play Julius Caesar and Caesar and Cleopatra. Mr. Plummer's leading lady will be Broadway and film sensation Anika Noni Rose. Rose won the praise of New York theater critics for her performance in the hit show Carolina Change, for which she won a coveted Tony Award. She is also known worldwide for her portrayal of pop singer Laurel Rob 
Robinson in the movie Dreamgirls. On Monday, September 10th, 2007, the company of Broadway Chicago welcomes Golden Globe winner George Hamilton for a limited four-week return engagement as the criminal lawyer Billy Flynn. Hamilton will appear through Sunday, October 7th. There we go. Top of the Trades is sponsored by BroadwayWorld.com. Go there for all of the latest theater news and chat. Curtain Call. Well, on August 25th, the year of magical thinking, starring Vanessa Redgrave, will be playing its final performance. And that wraps up a packed show. We got a lot more Nymph stuff coming at you for seven more weeks, so stay tuned and get subscribed. Thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. It is live. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.